This is The Guardian. Today, a meeting in Canada to try to halt the mass extinction of life on Earth. I reached Hindu Umaru Ibrahim a few days ago on the sidelines of a global environmental summit in Montreal, Canada. I'm from an indigenous community that call it Mbororo Pastoralis. Uh, I am from uh, Erawan Lake Chad. And Hindu belongs to the Mbororo people of the Central African country of Chad. So we do not have one place that we belong to, but we, have, uh, we are belonging to all the places that we are moving to. And she was telling me about all the ways the environment there is changing, drying out and becoming quieter. So when you are around Lake Chad, you see a lot of small islands that come out, just since my lifetimes. And you see around the islands some grass. It used to be a lot of wild animals. You can have elephant, you can have uh, uh, all the gazelle, but now you do not see the gazelle around the place. And this is the sad ecosystem that are disappearing around all the places. Hindu is a leader in her community. She's used to giving interviews. But it was when I asked her what she missed most about what nature looked like when she was growing up that I felt her being transported. Away from Canada in winter. Back to the places where she spent most of her life. Oh my God, I miss the smile of all the different species of the nature. When you are working there, you have a different flavor of perfume that is around all the places, surrounding your nose. It is not like a food. So I miss that a lot. I miss opening my eyes when I wake up by the sound of a different birds, different insects that are there and waking you up like alarm. I miss seeing the animals that are very beautiful, who you do not know, but you just like cooperate and live with. I miss the water place that we know exactly during the rainy season where we can get them. And then after like uh, a month of rain, you know, like the exact food that can grow up around the places. I, I miss actually the living in harmony in this ecosystem. Just so when they tell you, don't go there, it is a lot of knowledge that they are giving us around the place. This isn't just Hindu story or something happening in Chad. Chances are the environment that you remember as a kid has changed dramatically over the past few years. Fewer birds, the colours less vivid, the hum of insects quieter than it used to be. Animals and plants have always gone extinct but never as fast as we've seen in the past few decades, and never on the scale that we're seeing now. Scientists are calling this era an age of extinction, and a meeting this week in Canada is aiming to take the very first steps to try to reverse it. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has urged governments to end what he calls an orgy of destruction as a biodiversity summit kicks off in Canada. 
At its opening in Montreal, Guterres warned humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction and that it must change course. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, COP15 and the beginning of the fight back against mass extinction. Phoebe Weston, you're an environment correspondent for The Guardian covering biodiversity and you're in Montreal this week for COP15. When did we, as humanity, as a scientific community, first become aware that there was a crisis in biodiversity? So this is a problem that's tens of thousands of years old. When early humans started leaving Africa, they leave a trail of destruction around the planet. And this is in the extinctions of megafauna. And these are the planet's biggest animals like saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and there were beavers that were the size of bears and they hadn't evolved alongside humans. And so they were really easy prey. And so they were just, many of them were wiped out. And it's difficult to know whether humans were aware of what they were doing. And then we have a really key moment is the great acceleration. And this comes after World War II. And these scientists were just starting to notice that life was just disappearing off our planet. Um, And this was because the intensification of agriculture, chemicals that were developed during World War II were then being spread, like, you know, used in agriculture. And it was just killing nature. I would say the big growth in our understanding of the importance of biodiversity came more in like the 1980s. And when you talk about the great acceleration, I mean, what is that? What is it that researchers are picking up that is happening at such an incredible speed in comparison to the past? Yeah, it's it's the main thing is the intensification of agriculture. So agriculture is the main driver of biodiversity loss. And if you take a train across the U- the UK for example, you look out the window, you're quite likely to be looking at a field. Uh 70% of the UK is agricultural land and globally I think 50% of habitable land is farmed. So we've destroyed ecosystems to farm and lots of this farmland is taken up by livestock so it's that kind of the push for production of food after the war we've discovered all these chemicals we can start sloshing them all over the land and that creates obviously a lot more food population expansion but also destroys nature. And we've heard from Hindu about what this biodiversity crisis looks like in southern Chad. But Phoebe, what about where you're from? How are you experiencing this mass extinction? So, like, I grew up on a farm in uh, the south of England. And for me, biodiversity loss is the loss of swallows. These are amazing migratory birds. They come from southern Africa every year for thousands of years they migrate up to this farm this tiny spot on the planet um, and they fly over the fields eating insects and feeding their young and when I was growing up there would be like dozens of pairs of swallows but in the last like few decades the numbers have just been going down and down and down to the extent that last year We had three birds arrive in spring. So in the end, there were like three pairs. But if you just think about that's been that's a process happening for thousands of years. And in the space of a few decades, it's just disappearing. And this loss is like everyone has their local story of loss. 
It's actually quite similar to climate change because everyone notices, like in the UK last summer, it was 40 degrees, it was awful, and everyone noticed it. And you know, you can notice the climate crisis, you can also notice the biodiversity crisis has got that bad. Okay, so that's the problem. Let's talk about efforts to try to do something about it. There's a global meeting this week in Montreal, COP15, to try to hammer out targets to try to slow and even one day reverse the mass extinction of life on Earth. Tell me about that meeting. So COP15, this is, as you said, this is a biodiversity conference. It's the equivalent of the climate cops, COP27. So it's, n- it's number 15 because we're on the 15th conference of the parties for biodiversity. And at this conference, world leaders have drawn up a draft of 21-ish targets to save the natural world. And it's in this massive Word document, which is a complete mess at the moment. There's loads of brackets everywhere. And over this, this two weeks, the aim is to agree on what we can say uh, with these 20 targets. They basically need to iron out all these brackets. The biodiversity crisis is perhaps harder to get your head around than the climate crisis. And we know with the climate crisis, there's there's a North Star. It's keeping warming to within 1.5 degrees Celsius if possible. But we don't have that with biodiversity. We have these targets. So the key one is protecting 30% of the planet by 2030. But there are loads of others like um, reducing uh, pesticide use by two thirds. Another target is eliminating plastic pollution, halving the rate of invasive species introduction. So we're basically over these two weeks, we're negotiating all of those targets to get, you know, agree on what we can say about them. And this is a really important summit because we're setting the next decade of targets to stem this destruction of the natural world. So it's really crucial that a good agreement is reached. Let me zoom in on just one of these goals, this goal of trying to protect 30% of the Earth's surface by 2030. Just to put that challenge into perspective, how much of the Earth are we currently using? So humans are currently taking up between 50 and 70% of the planet. This 30% target is, it's achievable. The, the, the issue with 30% is we need to save the right 30%. So there's some countries which are, have amazing biodiversity and not only, obviously, are these places amazing for biodiversity, they're really important carbon stores as well. One that jumps to mind is the Amazon, the Congo, um, Indonesia, Borneo. Lots of these countries have you know, amazing resources of biodiversity and their carbon stores. So we need to make sure that we are protecting the most like biodiversity-rich parts of our planet. A key issue that is coming up at this conference is money. How do we pay these countries to protect these these resources, because not only are they a national asset, but they're an international asset. We know we have to protect these areas if we want to stick to our climate targets as well as preserving biodiversity. So there's really interesting sort of diplomatic play happening about, you know, those wealthy countries persuading the poorer nations with lots of biodiversity to just protect them. It's tricky. Mm. And what about those rich countries? How much of the land they're already using, do they need to try to give back to nature? Mm. So this is another issue with the target, whether it's also a national target. So in the UK, for example, 
we're part of the high ambition for nature and people. So we've said, we're going to get to 30% nationally. And lots of other countries have also said that. Of course, the devil's in the detail with this kind of thing, because the UK government says we're already protecting 28% of the UK because we have all these magnificent na um, national parks. But actually, if you look at how much is properly protected for nature, it's less than 5%. So these countries, they can... They can make these pledges themselves. They need to live up to them. Otherwise, it's just total hypocrisy. Although this conference is obviously the 21 targets, or this draft 21 targets, like Justin Trudeau in his opening speech kind of set out 30 by 30 as a key, a key thing they wanted to get. And progress is being made, no doubt. But of the world's five biggest countries, none of us is yet at 30% of both our land and waters protected. Now, we don't have to get all the way there by tomorrow, but by 2030, we all really do. By 2030, we must halt and reverse biodiversity loss. What was really important about this is that indigenous rights are, re are respected when it comes to protecting 30 by 30. This is a huge issue because historically, you know, Western countries, when they do conservation, they're like, right, we need to preserve this bit of land, everyone out. And this has resulted in the violation and of, of indigenous rights all over the world. This, in the 19th century, they think that 20 million people worldwide were killed as a result of conservation. So there's this really kind of tricky backdrop to this agreement, which is, again, why lots of people don't want to agree to it. And at the end of the conference, at the end of this week, what do we hope that countries will walk away having achieved? Like, what is the bare minimum that we expect they're going to do there? So I'd say the, the sort of success of this conference hangs on 30 by 30 being agreed. But the conference will be a failure if that's the only thing that's agreed. You know, we need to agree all of the other targets. And Lots of people even say that the ambition in this conference has been watered down. You know, we need to address consumption, use of pesticides. All of these things need to be addressed. So a good agreement is going to be good, strong wording on all of those 21 targets. So Phoebe, we're talking about this problem on a national level, but what might solving it mean for you and me if we started to take this crisis and our role in it more seriously? If we need to tackle this, it needs to be a lot higher in our priority list. And this includes companies not just thinking about their impact on carbon, but also thinking about their impact on the biodiversity crisis. Back in March or April, there was this really interesting comment piece published in the journal Nature. And it was the University of Oxford had measured its biodiversity footprint. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Of course, everyone's aware of companies taking, you know, taking into account their carbon footprint, but biodiversity footprint. I thought that's really interesting. So I read the paper and thought, it said at the top under the headline, it was very, uh, it was a good line. It said, every large organization should track a path to biodiversity net gain. Here's how. And I was like, great, at The Guardian, let's start thinking about this. Let's start thinking about not only our impact on carbon, but our impact on biodiversity, because it just makes sense to do it.
Interesting. So how do you go about doing that? How do you go about measuring the biodiversity footprint of an organization like The Guardian? So with carbon, I think 70, 75% of The Guardian's carbon um, emissions comes from the production of the paper. It's obviously a very, you know, it's a big process. So I went with Julie Richards um, from the sustainability team to go and look at the paper plant that makes the paper The Guardian's printed on. And basically all of the old papers, unused papers, all of your council letters, all of that is being fed into this massive factory. And then that paper, within three hours, it passes through this whole process and comes out as a massive roll of paper, which is then made into The Guardian and other papers. We put it through processes, we cycle it 10 to 15 times and then um, clean it up and then put it back in the paper. So you get you take the water out of there and then it it would be used within the factory yes. 10 to 15 times. Yes, exactly. So with our carbon footprint, we already have our sustainability team has a massive Excel spreadsheet. And this has all of the activities that the Guardian does um, in a year. So not only does the biodiversity audit look at the carbon impacts of those activities, because the climate crisis is a driver of biodiversity loss, but it takes into account four other things. So this is pollution of water, use of water, pollution of air and use of land. Basically, this is kind of a sort of a high level summary of all the data. So we have sort of like it divided into different sections. So we've got like business travel. Um, then we go into things like food and events, the big one, which is newspaper production mm. life cycle um, and other things such as like office activities associated with the office. This bit of research we're doing at The Guardian, we're just starting to kind of get to grips with this issue. So we're not going to have really clear findings, but we're going to know the relative impacts of different parts of our business. So we'll know how much of an impact print is having on biodiversity or food or IT equipment or the, the running of the building. And so next year, we're going to have this data. We're going we're gonna to start sharing it with people and thinking about what are we going to do with it, right? We need to start reducing our impact on biodiversity. So, and then in the future, we might think about making some kind of pledge about biodiversity that would stand alongside our carbon pledge. 30 years ago, probably none of us had any sense of our carbon emissions, of our country's carbon emissions, or those of our employers. And obviously, today, we're well aware of it. Do you think this field is similar? Like, by 2030, are we going to know our impact on biodiversity at the same level, in the same detail, that we do our own carbon emissions? It is heading that way. Biodiversity is a long way behind, so I couldn't say whether it will be that sophisticated by 2030, but there's definitely a big push towards companies doing this and starting to really get good data on biodiversity as with carbon this leaves huge like the door wide open to sort of greenwashing and companies saying they're doing stuff for biodiversity that they're not which is again going to be a huge issue but i just think it's really important that we start thinking about biodiversity alongside you know carbon so i really hope that there will be good data by 2030 and that we'll be able to take meaningful action to reduce biodiversity loss as a result of that. Coming up, 
how seriously are politicians taking the biodiversity crisis? And what would it take to make them care? One question I have listening to you, Phoebe, is that this is obviously a huge problem and one that demands to be taken seriously very quickly. So given that, why isn't someone like Joe Biden attending this event or the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, given how urgent the problem is? Yeah, well, Joe Biden wouldn't really attend because the US didn't actually sign the Convention on Biological Diversity. They're not they're not part of it. So there is a US biodiversity envoy here, but they're kind of on the outskirts of negotiations. In terms of Rishi Sunak, there was pressure from MPs and conservation groups that he should attend. To be fair to him, though, there'll be very few world leaders coming to this conference. Now, that's partly because people just don't take the biodiversity crisis seriously, which is crazy. Hundreds taking to the streets in Montreal with a clear message for world leaders. What do we do? strike a deal to help stop biodiversity loss. Um, but it's also because of this weird diplomatic stuff that's going on here. So this, the president of this COP is China. It was meant to happen in China. The reason it's happening in Canada is because China's zero COVID policy was just like too difficult to have a global conference there. But it's being run by Canada. There's been not a huge amount of leadership from what I can see from China. And they didn't invite world leaders because Xi Jinping wasn't going to go and he didn't want to be embarrassed. So world leaders haven't really been even encouraged to come to this conference, which is quite a frustrating position to be in. Hindu, you're someone from an indigenous community, and I wonder... What perspective you think that gives you on solving this problem that might not be so readily available to people who come from countries that are usually called developed countries and which you are calling overdeveloped countries? Actually, that's what we are doing. We are not waiting for them to solve it because it is a matter of survival for us and a matter of duty to respect the Mother Earth. We're always using our traditional knowledge as indigenous peoples from the various ecosystems to protect the glaciers or to protect the desert, to restore the ecosystems that are degraded or to protect our forests. So we're already doing it. We are doing it, but we can do it more if we get them learn from us to do not think they are more smart and smart than us because that's what take the, uh, the developed country overdeveloped and taking us in this bad, uh, bad uh, path because they think that they are more smarter than anyone else. But they are wrong. They are not smarter than the master of the environment. We live in this environment forever. So we know exactly the little tiny change of an insect as the big change in our atmospheres. So they must come back and sit down and learn from us. Their solutions are taking them to be an egoistic and be, being a competitive way of how they can extract more and be more rich. 
So they must come back to us and learn the living in harmony is mean also living in the society by giving chance to everyone to get a same access to the resources, same rights, and thinking about how we can live the next generation. And Phoebe, has someone articulated to you in a really compelling way what the future vision is here? The kind of world that we can strive for where climate change is no longer as pressing an issue and where we're, and where we're not having this devastating impact on all other life on the planet. Like, what does that world actually look like? There's, there's a way out of the climate crisis. We've got these renewable energies. There's a transition. It's happening. People really care about it. I think we'll get there. Whether we get there in time or not, I don't know. But there's, there's a roadmap. There's no roadmap out of this biodiversity crisis. Like, I f- would find it hard to answer that question in a positive way. This really, we need so much more pressure on governments to look at biodiversity loss. It's it's really scary. And um, there's so much that needs to be done and, and no one's really painting a really clear roadmap to get out of it. I will say this conference is really important. If we can get a good agreement and actually act on these targets, that will be a huge step forward. But again, I'm really cautious about that because In 2010, when the last 20-odd targets were agreed, the world failed to meet, collectively failed to meet every single one of them. My tiny glimmer of hope that I would like to finish this podcast with is the fact I think people love nature. Like, nature shouldn't be a controversial issue. Everyone can get behind it. Even Donald Trump likes trees. Like, we should get behind this. And actually... In the UK, we've seen this massive interest in rewilding. People want to live on a planet where nature is restored. And obviously with extinctions, extinctions are final. They're not coming back. So we need to tackle, there's currently one million species at risk of extinction. We need to tackle that urgently. But nature comes back really, really quickly if you give it space. And in that sense, biodiversity is an incredible local story. Sure, we have these international conferences for it, but at the end of the day, it's loads of local stories. And if as individuals and communities, we can give nature space, it comes back, you'll be rewarded for it. I think when people kind of get onto this nature thing, it can be really, really exciting. Well, Phoebe, I'm not certain Donald Trump does like trees, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. That was Phoebe Weston. She covers biodiversity for The Guardian. You can follow all her work from Montreal at theguardian.com. That is it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we are back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.